1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like weeds, frowning and ketchup. Mm. I love that idea. And you know
0: what? I have no rhymes for us today. That's extraordinary and ordinary and shmordinary. I can't think of anything more. However, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways who knew for example sam who knew that the history of birds is in fact all about the battle of waterloo and plumed helmets it's about costume feathers hats the American Ornithologists' Union and Cruelty to Birds, it's also all about canary resuscitators, John Scott Halden and the use of canaries down mines and in the trenches during World War I. Who knew? Or that the history of leaving home is in fact all about 17th century boys attending school and university. It's about going off to war and travelling around the world. It's also all about the fascinating history of Viking invasions. Mm,
1: very good stuff. I enjoyed doing those ones, actually. Thinking oh. back to them. I like this part of the show. We think about what we've, all, what we've been doing and it's also what we're going to do in the future. It? Yeah, it is. Like history, James. Uh, you're probably wondering who is doing all this talking. Let me just tell you that if history was a snail, well, this man would be the best, the neatest, the most systematic, careful and analytical snail collector or conchologist in history. None other than the 1681 Jesuit priest Filippo Bonani, (laughs) who published the (laughs) two-volume atlas Recreazione dell'Occhio e della Mente nell'Osservazione della Ciocchioli. There we go. Uh, Which is the first treatise devoted entirely to mollusk shells. And uh, that would be uh, none other than Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth
0: University. It's James Daybell. I love that idea. I'll take that as a as a sign. I'll take that positively, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. Um <laughs> Um, The man not sitting opposite me because we are still social distancing, still, and it's almost April. Um, Well, let's just say that if he were a snail-related historian, well, he'd in fact be the polar opposite of a snail in historical terms. So fast is his historical mind. So sharp is his analytical ingenuity. So unslimy is his historical thinking. Yes, you've guessed it, it's your friend and mine. It's the famous historical adventurer from a across town, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Thank you, James. We, are doing... had the, we had the loveliest email this week that I'd just like to, just like to say thank you okay. um, to the person who wrote. I won't name drop them, but you know who you are. This is a teacher who's teaching in an international school in Kazakhstan and inspired by our lockdown family oral history project. He got his 11-year students doing some really interesting work, going out and interviewing uh, their their grandparents and sent through some of the work that they've been doing. And it was so brilliant to see this, so good to see that people have picked up on the ideas of the podcast. So thank you very much and, you know, and good luck.
1: Yeah, good luck. We're hugely inspired by your work. Um, it works both ways. Thank you so much Absolutely. for getting in touch and telling us. Uh, today we are doing Snails. Um, this was one of James's. Um, I think you you wrote it down as one of your introduction things. We could do the history of snails, and I thought, well, why not? Let's do the history of snails, uh, because I was uh, reading. I got a new favourite author, James um, uh, Anthony Doer Doer D O E R R, um, and he's written a tremendous book. And there were lots of snails in that book, um, which got me thinking. Hmm, because the book's about the Second World War and um, yeah. snaily stuff in, in World War Two. <gasps> um so i thought oh we, we we let's let's definitely do snails so with this subject how do we go about it how might you think about it in general um i think you know off the top of our head james obviously it's 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 something that you know you can link to the history of science very easily um we've done this several times haven't we with animals um whether it's sharks or worms or whatever it might be the point is if you want to do the history of something you can think about how our scientific understanding of, uh, of an animal has changed over time I was very interested in snail collecting um the huge variety of them and how that fits in with the history of evolution um I, I also wondered about whether people uh kind of harvested snails for something I don't know didn't know the answer to that and I actually couldn't find an answer for that um but it wouldn't surprise me if they were used for
0: glue or ink or something like that I don't know if you came across anything like that okay they were used for food and that was what led, um. sent me off. Mm -hmm. in various directions, eating snails, also snails in handbags and eccentricity. (laughs) That's cool. I'm going to talk about that. I found a brilliant article all about the novelist Patricia Highsmith, you know, the talented Mr. Ripley uh, novelist, and Patricia Highsmith was obsessed with snails. I'm going to talk about that. She used to sort of carry them around with her. Uh, So I'm I'm going to sort of... Uh, illuminate you about that. So a brilliant piece uh, by somebody called Fiona Peters at Bath Spa University who wrote a piece called Uncanny Snails, Patricia Highsmith and the Allure of the Gastropods. Ooh, let's um, look forward to so that. So that's very good. And also, yet yeah, snails, snails as food, which we can trace back to... The Roman world, but also we can trace back many, many years before many centuries centuries before uh, to Africa um, and also we can trace to times of famine and plague, and there are uh, there are sort of you know a, a, a food that is associated. Um, with times of crisis so they were they were eaten when people had nothing else to eat so that's where that's <laughs> like, like, where like, people, eating <laughs> Pe- like people, people eating their, people eating, their like shoes like people eating people eating tulips and things so it's famine food wow. you know, when you've got nothing else to to eat you know you will eat almost anything I'm going to start with an excellent little story. Uh this this isn't really
1: a full contribution. I just came across it and it's brilliant. Uh because it it, it links snails with with history and historians in 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 sort of two ways. So I go back to 1846 in the British Museum itself um and the the curators of snailiness uh whatever they were doing, you know, they came across a snail which had um it had come to the British Museum from the Egyptian desert, where it had been collected in 1846 by a person called Charles Lamb, um, and it was a specimen he described as Helix desertorum. So it's come all the way from Egypt. It dies. They glue it to a to like a board, a display board, and five years later it woke up. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, lo- they fed it cabbage leaves, um, and then um, uh, it was awake for a couple of years. And then it fell into another taut, sort of. Torpor. It's described as it's a bit like um, hibernation of some kind of description. If you know about snails, do please get in touch with me. But um, it then went back to sleep for another two years, and they reckon anyway, this thing fell asleep. They reckon the last time it was awake was in the Egyptian desert, and then it wakes up. And it wakes up on, on glued to a board in the British Museum in 1846, uh, which I I loved that as a as a little snaily history story to start us off with. Ah, ex- excellent.
0: Well, I will tell you what, I'm going to start with. Um... I was going to, I'm going to do it in reverse. I was going to talk about snail eating, but actually uh, I'm, I'm much more interested in, in Patricia Highsmith, um, who's a fascinating author. Um, she died uh, in 1995. She's an American novelist, short story writer. Um, she wrote all sorts of thrillers. She invented the character Tom Ripley. Um, and she's somebody who, t- turns out, she's obsessed with snails. And snails have a very interesting personal history for her, and I think it's sort of wrapped up with her a lot of her eccentricities and phobias and the way that she felt about people. But it's also a motif, a theme that runs through a lot of her writing. Now, in terms of in terms of her own personal interest in snails, she seems to have been quite a sort of peculiar character, um, and has befriended. Um, Snails So there, there's an occasion where She actually took them to a She turns up at a, at a sort of glittery Cocktail party uh, With snails in her handbag And takes them out And also she preferred Snails to people And there are anecdotes About her Actually when she lived in Europe And travelled between Europe and the UK uh, She would Take large African snails secreted under her bra through customs so that she could move them from one country to the other. And there's a quote here. Um, After staying with her at her house in Suffolk, I met her the following week at a cocktail party in London, says Peter Thompson. She walked in with this gigantic handbag, which she then opened up with pride and which contained a hundred snails and an enormous head of lettuce she absolutely adored the snails they were her companions for the evening and i think it goes on sort of saying about how actually she preferred um she preferred snails to people and and at dinner and at parties like this would prefer to be by herself with the snails. And actually, if she went along to a situation where she either felt socially awkward or she disliked the people that were inviting her, she would literally get the snails out and allow them to sort of run backwards and forwards, not run backwards and forwards, but sort of smear all their slime all over their furniture and, and the table, Uh, as a sort of, I suppose, as a sort of an affront to them. And this, this piece continues. Her editor at Doubleday, Larry Ashmead, recalls that when Highsmith moved to France in 1967, she told him that she smuggled her pets into the country under her breasts. You couldn't take live snails into France, so she was sneaking them in under her breasts, he says, and that wasn't just on one trip. No, she kept going back and forth. She said that she would take six to ten of the creatures under each breast every time she went. And she wasn't joking. She was very serious. Now, moving on from this sort of personal connection to snails, her obsession with snails, they also seep into her novels and her Short stories, and they crop up in one early novel published in 1957 called *Deep Water*. And this novel has a hero called Victor Van Allen, and he's a sort of an, an outsider um, living in upstate New York, who's very, who's sort of alienated from his his wife, and he doesn't find any sort of comfort in that relationship, uh, and instead he befriends two pet snails called Hortense and Edgar, and he views them uh, making love. Hortense and Edgar, and I'm quoting here from the book, were making love. Edgar reaching down from a little rock to kiss Hortense on the mouth. Hortense was rearing on the end of her foot, swaying a little under his caress like a slow dancer enchanted by music. Vic, so this is our protagonist, watched for five, perhaps five minutes, thinking of absolutely nothing. Not even the snails, until he saw the cup-shaped excrescences start to appear on the right side of both snails' heads. How they did adore each other, and how perfect they were together. The glutinous cups grew larger and touched, rim to rim, their mouths drew apart. And snail activity crops up in other short stories there's one published in 1970 which is called "The snail watcher and there's also one in another one in 1970 called the quest for blank Claveringi." Um, and here we see snails not in a in a sort of um a way as as friends but in sort of very malign ways um which i'll come along and talk about uh, in, in a little bit um the The article that I've been reading uh, here um, is a great article. Uh, so it's called "Uncanny Snails: Patricia Highsmith and the Allure of the Gastropods" by Fiona Peters, um, and it goes on to sort of trace the the sort of history of snails in literature through sort of the medieval gothic snails and this and knights battling uh, giant snails it then looks at the way in which you know snails crop up into into literary theory so it does some stuff on lacan and Zizek and and julia kristeva um it looks at sort of the use of of snails in french in french cuisine and then goes through a really detailed uh, exploration of these uh, of the snails in these in these books. Um, we've talked already about deep water, but what I'd like to talk about now is the 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 the, the short stories, and start with the snail watcher. So here we have uh, another another sort of male figure a man called peter knoppert who's a partner in a in a brokerage firm and again he's somebody who's who's in a sort of a a failing marriage and what he does is instead he turns to snails and remember what i said here that actually the snails are quite um are quite sort of malign forces and what he does is he comes home from from work one day and finds these snails uh on the in a in a in a bowl on the working surface in the kitchen you know being sort of prepared for dinner and he 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 doesn't like the idea of this and so what he does is he he basically rescues these snails and he takes them into his study um and preserves them and what happens is again he he becomes sort of transfixed by these mating snails and you know rather like the the other novel that we were talking about but what happens is these snails keep breeding and they're in his they're in his study and they grow into their thousands uh so much so that they just take over his his whole you know his whole world um and they also are part of his demise, and they're they're absolutely everywhere. He's trapped in his room behind all of these sort of snails. tries to get out of the window. They've sort of glued the window up. They're behind the wallpaper. The wallpaper sort of falls upon him. And there's a, a passage where it, it it talks about his sort of his his sort of demise. A snail crawled into his mouth. He spat it out in disgust. Then through the slit of an eye he saw directly in front of him only inches away what had been he knew the rubber plant that stood in its pot near the door a pair of snails were quietly making love in it and right beside them tiny snails as pure as drew were emerging from a pit like an infinite infinite army into their widening world, and so what happens is the encrusted wallpaper peels off. It hits him on the head, followed by a chandelier, and he dies there with snails, sort of you know crawling into his mouth and 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 ultimately, you know, ultimately killing him. The final short story that we have is the quest for Blank Claveringi, uh, and this is basically about a protagonist who goes out trying to chase down a giant snail. And what happens here is the man chasing, hunting down the snail is killed by the snail and he travels to an island to find it and he finds one gigantic snail and then, quote, a gigantic face regarded him, a face with drooping scalloped cheeks or lips with antennae six feet long now, the eyes on ends of them scrutinising at his own level. If the shell was 15 or 18 feet in diameter, he reckoned that the snail's body or foot would be something like six yards when extended. And what happens is he tries to sort of go into the sea uh, to escape it and the, the, the snail follows him. Our hero, I quote, kills the male but in but is overcome by the female who leaves his corpse disdainfully for her little ones to devour this he realizes as he is being eaten alive so there we are the sort of the peculiar world of patricia highsmith this obsession with snails and then the way in which this obsession with snails and human relationships seeps into her literary output how about that sam i wasn't expecting to find <laughs> snails in novelists handbags when no. you suggested this it was fantastic well done i really enjoyed that <laughs> I, was, I was
1: really super i'm gonna to have to listen to it again to actually work out how how we went from being uh dying and having a snail in your mouth and fighting giant snails to having snails uh, under your breasts and in your handbags but we somehow managed to do so yes. and i'm delighted about that <laughs> um
0: Hit up quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com/upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Do you know what? I mean, the, the there are so many different ways you can think about snails, actually. But the um, I, I went to the literary world as well because I wanted to talk about this book, this book by Anthony Doer. Um, called "All the Light We Cannot See." It's about a blind French girl um, who, who's brought up in Paris. She, uh, her father works in the Museum of Natural History, and her, her her life kind of gets intertwined with a a German scientific genius who's brilliant at making radios. Uh, and it ends up with um, the the blind French girl, her her uh, uncle, I think it was her great uncle, um, operates a radio for the resistance, and this German boy Werner. Um who is the scientific genius to, is sent out to track down um illegal radio signals anyway they're part of the cross um fascinating here because of the theme of snails which repeatedly appears in this book I really would urge you all to read it it's one of the most extraordinary books I've ever read um and this wonderful moment particularly at the beginning because she's at the Museum of Natural History where her father works she she comes across snails for the first time she collects them and she actually goes on later in life towards the end of the book to become a a noted scientist of mollusks um it's quite interesting why these snails come up. And one way of reading it is: is yes, she she admires these snails for their beauty, um, but also she constantly talks about their ability to withstand the beaks of seagulls, their ability to remain securely attached to rocks and stones. There's a wonderful bit where when she moves from Paris to Saint Malo just before the it's firebombed by the Allies, and she is taken. By a veteran of the First World War, down to a little grotto, which is covered in snails, and she spends a great deal of time there uh, collecting them. And because she's blind, she she has to only use her touch to identify the snails. Uh, nonetheless, this, this this theme regularly comes back of um, snails and their ability to withstand chaos. Um, it's all to do, I think, with uh, peace and stability. It's why they feature so regularly in the book. I just wanted to to read you a little bit uh, from the beginning because this is from when she's in the Natural History Museum and she comes across snails for the first time and it made me want to be a snail collector having not even considered snail collecting. I can't believe I've never considered it in my entire life but apparently I did. On the back wall of Dr. Geffard's lab are cabinets that contain more drawers than she can count, and he lets her open them one after another and hold seashells in her hands, whelks, olives, imperial volutes from Thailand, a spider conches from Polynesia. The museum possesses more than ten thousand specimens, over half the known species in the world, and Mary Law gets to handle most of them. Now that shell, Lorette, belonged to a violet sea snail, a blind snail, that lives its whole life on the surface of the sea. As soon as it is released into the ocean, it agitates the water to make bubbles and binds those bubbles with mucus and builds a raft. Then it blows around, feeding whatever floating aquatic invertebrates it encounters. But if it ever loses its raft, it will sink and die. A carinaria shell is simultaneously light and heavy, hard and soft, smooth and rough. The murex Dr. Gephard keeps on his desk can entertain her for half an hour. The, follow, the hollow spines, the ridged whorls, the deep entrance, it's a forest of spikes and caves and textures. It's a kingdom. Her hands move ceaselessly, gathering, probing, and testing. So there you are. It's a it's it's imaginary, but it's it's crucially important uh, because of of the uh, it's opening a window to to collecting snails and also the clever use by Mr. Anthony Duer of of shells. Um, I believe as a
0: symbol of resistance during the Second World War. Oh, love it, Sam! It's absolutely brilliant. So I'm riffing now on your question earlier on about whether people collected sh- snails for any sort of practical purpose whether they had any sort of any uses and I think there are all sorts of uses for them I think there's a lot of evidence firstly about people eating snails um, and in fact if you've never eaten snails snails are absolutely delicious prepared in a, in a sort of very French French way with garlic and butter um, they're 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 absolutely delicious and you have to prepare them by um by popping them in a sort of thing of lettuce uh, and or get them to eat carrots for a while so that they purge all the sort of toxins out of their body uh but then they are a, a culinary delicacy and we can trace that all the way back to to i think it's africa um about um you know 32,000 to 26,000 uh, years ago um so there's a into um yes i'm reading here uh in the sort of the mediterranean coast of north africa france italy and greece um we can also see it in uh in in the roman world and if you have a look at the sort of archaeological remains there's a lot that that survives there i think if we think about our our tudor book uh where we looked at accidents i think one of the things that um that came out of that was snail slime being used as a lubricant uh, for wheel axles. So they have they have properties there. I think there's also um, there are also uh, medicinal properties uh, there. And if we go back to our our classical writers, uh, Fulvius Lipinus, uh and um and we have a look at the the work there and also Pliny the elder in his natural history you can see um various sort of parts of the snails being being ground up uh and used in various ways and there's in in Pliny the elder's natural history in chapter 59 which is about vipers and snails this is quite illuminating you'll love this sam it is said that the viper is the only one among the serpents that conceals itself in the earth, the others lurking either in the hollow of trees or in holes in the rocks. Provided they are not destroyed by cold, they can live there without taking food for a whole year. During the time that they are asleep in their retreat, none of them are venomous. A similar state of torpor exists also in snails. These animals again become dormant during the summer, adhering very powerfully to stones, and even when turned up and pulled away from the stones they will not leave their shells. In the Balearic Isles the snails, which are known as the cave snail, do not leave their holes in the ground, nor do they feed upon any green thing but adhere to each other like so many grapes. There is another less common species also, which is closed by an persolem that adheres to the shell these animals always burrow under the earth and were formerly never found except in the environs of the maritime alps they have however of late been dug up in the territory of laternum the most valued however are those of the island of asteplea um, and he goes on to sort of talk about the He goes on to talk about the uses of them, so having done this sort of study of where they are. um, And he says here, um, if either testicle hangs down, we are told that a remedy is found in applying the slime of snails. Foul and running ulcers on these parts are relieved by the fresh ashes of a dog's head, by the small, broad kind of snail beaten up in vinegar by the slough of a snake or its ash in vinegar, by honey in which bees have died, mixed with resin, by the shellless kind of snail which I have said breeds in Africa, beaten up with the powdered frankincense and white of eggs. The application is removed on the 13th day, and some add a bulb instead of frankincense. And so you can see... Um, uh, snails being very uh, useful for medicinal purposes. There, I think also that while they're eaten throughout throughout history, as I was saying earlier on, they are also a form of famine food. So they're one of those things that you that people turn to in absolute desperation. Um, and I've got an an extract here uh, from Robert Chambers eighteen fifty eight domestic annals of Scotland from the Reformation to the revolution and it describes it tells a story of two girls, Bessie Bell and Mary gray, in the year of uh, sixteen forty five and um, and here it's basically saying that during a period of um you know of, of great sort of um, you know famine for them um they are you know, they turn to eating snails. In the town of Dundee, there exists a strange traditional story of the plague connected with the conversion from dire necessity of the Arionnatum, or black slug, which is also, also it sort of, it, it's also snails as well, to a use similar to that which the luxurious Romans are said to have made of the great apple snail. Two young and blooming maidens lived together at that dread time like Bessie Bell and Mary Grey in a remote cottage on the steep, indeed almost perpendicular, ascent of Bonnetmaker's Hill. Deprived of friends or support by the pestilence that walked at noonday, they still retained their good looks and healthful aspect, even when the famine had succeeded to the plague the jaundiced eyes of the famine-wasted wretches around them were instantly turned towards the poor girls, who appeared to thrive so well whilst others were famishing. They were unhesitatingly accused of witchcraft, and had nearly fallen a prey to that terrible charge, for betwixt themselves they had sworn never to tell in words by what means they were supported, ashamed, as they felt, of the resource to which they had been driven, and resolved, if possible, to escape the anticipated derision of their neighbours on its disclosure. It was only when about to be dragged before their stern inquisitors that one of the girls, drawing aside the covering of a great barrel which stood in a corner of their domicile, discovered, without violating her oath, that the youthful pair had been driven to the desperate necessity of collecting and preserving for food large quantities of these and then it's a latin word limacino uh, which is uh, which means snails uh, which they ultimately acknowledge to approve to them generous and even agreeable sustenance so this actually is from is from uh, the year of 1665 1666 When the plague was ravishing in London and these girls um, were eating uh, these things in a manner that these two girls, Bessie Bell and Mary Grey, did in a a story from 1645. So there we are, snails as famine food, Sam. (laughs) I I love this idea of famine food. I think it's brilliant.
1: Let me just end with uh, something from uh, Emmanuel Mendes de Costa, who you will all know very well. I am sure he's an English botanist and naturalist, uh, he's a philosopher. He becomes very famous for embezzling funds whilst working at the Royal Society. and was imprisoned, uh, and otherwise, he's uh, well known because he's one of the first Jewish fellows of the Royal Society of London. This guy writes uh, a wonderful book called "The Elements of Concology, or Concology, I think Concology. Concology Concology: The Elements of Concology: or an Introduction to the Knowledge of Shell." and uh, his first paragraph should inspire you all to go and come uh, snail experts. The study of shells or testaceous animals is a branch of natural history, though not greatly useful in human economy, yet perhaps by the infinite beauties of the subjects it treats of, is adapted to recreate the senses and insensibly to lead the amazed admirer into the contemplation of the glory of the divinity in their creation. That's a wonderful way of starting a little book, I think. So that is a, it's a fab book to read. Um, the Elements of Conchology are from 1776, and I'd urge you all to try and find that online. That's it for now. That's our wonderful um, entertainment on the history of snails, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. If you want to find out what we're up to, do please follow us all on social media. I'm at Doctor Sam Willis on Twitter, and if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check
0: out my podcast, The Mariner's Mirror Podcast. And I am James Daybell in real life And on Twitter I am (laughs) at James Daybell And the podcast is at UnexpectedPod We are also smeared all over social media We are on Instagram, so you can follow us there We are also on Facebook, so get in touch And people have been been getting in touch on those diverse platforms Which has been great So we've had lots of interaction with you folks um, Who are listening to this and seem to be um, liking it uh, which is good to hear. We also have a website where you can find out everything that we have been up to, which is historiesoftheunexpected.com. I wonder why we thought of that URL. <laughs> I don't know. That's it for now, guys. We'll be back again soon. Cheerio. Take care. Bye.